Hi, this is Phil Yanov, and welcome to the Tech After Five podcast. I have got with me, as I always do, my friend and co-host, Scott Pfeiffer. Great to be here, Phil. And uh, Scott is, I see today, sporting, you know, we always call this out. Now, today he's got a brand new shirt as well. He's got, this guy's logoed up. You know the rule is you can't show up on a podcast without logoed swag. So uh, Scott's, uh, Scott got, has got his shirt on. Uh, hey, my son at Henry Pfeiffer Studio. There you go. And it's a, and some ad for that while we're at it. plug, right? I got it. He's plug. Henry will, uh, Henry will enjoy that for sure. Um, so t- today we have as our guest uh, Donald Robertson, who is an author and cognitive behavioral therapist, and most recently the author of How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, which I have right here actually in my hand. Uh, thank you for coming and being with us today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Yeah. Looking forward to it. I am super stoked and very excited about this conversation. Now, let me just introduce from one piece of this is, you know, Tech After Five, right? So we've got 26,000 tech professionals who we send this out to and are watching what we're doing. And they might think, hey, we normally talk about either technology or we talk about networking and those kinds of things. And the reason I'm bringing this to our audience today is I think it's pretty easy for technology to sort of outpace ethical frameworks, right? And one of the things is, I mean, I think that we're always at the edge of that and people don't have answers for that. So for me, it has been, stoicism has been a great scaffolding upon which to decide how does a virtuous man act and what should he be doing and how can I do the right thing and what does the right thing look like and what are my values? and. Uh, I have felt like stoicism is a strong part of that. And I have you know, read a lot over the years and I began with the meditations as most people do. But I'm gonna say that when I came across how to think like a Roman emperor, I now believe that this is the on-ramp for folks. If you are trying to get used, if you're trying to get some understanding of stoicism, I can't believe there's a better place to start than this. And that's why I invited Donald Robertson to come and talk to us about how to think like a Roman emperor. Did I get that about right? Roman, did I, I mean, if I, I, I got you introduced, I think that's the, you're the right guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. It's always funny talking about books because it takes, we were talking earlier about how it takes a while to write them. So I think, oh yeah, that, I remember writing that. That was ages ago. It was a couple of years ago now. Yeah. Like, you know, and then you move on to the next thing. So, you know, I mentioned that the, I'm working on a graphic novel at the moment, but you still end up talking about, I think sometimes I think I kind of remember what I actually wrote in that book. It's been a while since I looked at it. But it's, uh, it's it, I, I wanted to write a book that was in a different style that had more stories in it and more history in it because I felt weirdly from talking to my, my little girl, my, my nine-year-old daughter, she was about five actually when I started very, the very, very beginnings of this, that she could talk to me about philosophy as long as I put it in the form of little anecdotes and stories about Socrates and Diogenes and Cynic. And then I just kind of thought, well, isn't this the same maybe for adults? Like, could we do more philosophy if we just talked about the stories and the anecdotes a bit more? And we made it seem less uh, theoretical. And then I thought, well, I'll have a bash at doing that and see whether people agree with me. But it's funny, in terms of the tech industry, you know, we have this website. I'm part of a non-profit organization called Modern Stoicism, and, and it has a blog, and that blog has over 600 articles on it from people all over the world. And what we noticed very early on when we began organizing our conferences and things was that there were kind of interesting subgroups 
of people that were interested in, in modern stoicism. And so one of them is there's a bunch of people that we kept meeting that were involved in different branches of the military. And then there's people that are really interested in life coaching and corporate training. And then there's a bunch of psychotherapists like me. And then there's some classicists that sit over there at the other, you know, at the other table in the cafeteria. Like, and then they... They were by was, themselves and they thought they were doing <laughs> And then there's like people that are into sports coaching and stuff. And... Uh, but then a lot of, a big part of the demographic we know for people that are interested in stoicism are, and I can't, this, this term always makes me cringe a bit for some reason, but they're, they're referred to as millennials that work in the tech industry. Like, so you hear that phrase bandied around a lot. Like, so there's a lot of young people, and they call them Silicon Valley Stoics as well, is the other kind of slightly cringy term that kind of gets used. But there's a particular demographic, like, I mean, it covers all age groups, but a lot of young people in particular are drawn to Stoicism who work in the tech industry. And we've got a bunch of articles that have started to appear recently from mm -hmm. people actually talking about that and reflecting on it and saying, why is it? that someone that works in the tech industry might be particularly interested in stoicism and you know they're beginning to talk about that from their perspective you know have friends who work in that industry and, and saying why does stoicism resonate with them and their colleagues and friends um and i have my own views about that as well i'll say right out of the gate actually i'll, I'll give you an analogy which no one ever mentions or they seldom do ancient stoicism heavily influenced by socrates Everywhere that Socrates goes, pretty much, you'll find the sophists, right? The sophists attract Sto Socrates. Like, um, he, he, love, he has a love-hate relationship with them. Like, he loves to kind of argue with them and debate with them. And then Socrates defined philosophy, in a sense, in contrast, in an opposition to what the sophists were doing. You know, he was fascinated by them, but he thought there was something fundamentally misleading something fundamentally wrong about their whole way of doing a kind of quasi philosophy and he wanted to to radically challenge that and the stoics stand very much in that tradition and um, during the reign of marcus aurelius there was a movement called the second sophistic where these sophists reappeared throughout rome in particular the emperor hadrian marcus's adoptive grandfather was a big patron of the sophists okay so here's my punchline i'm going to put it to you guys that the sophists are still alive and well and that, in fact, now they've become algorithms and the, the, what were once were the ancient sophists who competed with each other um, to draw, attract the biggest crowds and the highest fees and would say emotive things, using rhetoric to manipulate the emotions of the audience and capture, hijack their attention. Um, the mainstream media... And social media today, I believe, occupy the role of the ancient sophists because they're constantly competing to grab our attention. They'll tell us whatever they can get away with telling us in order to grab our attention and hijack it for as long as possible. And we have to learn, it's incumbent on us in a way, to learn how to somehow defend ourselves against manipulation through social media and through the news media and things like that and, and take a step back from all the alarmist and emotive stuff that we're hearing all the kind of anger and rage that we see online and not be kind of sucked into it in the same way that the ancient athenians 
Socrates thought had to learn to take a step back from all the rhetoric of the ancient sophists and not be swept along by it. So that's one of the analogies that I would draw. And I think the young people in particular that I speak to see that, they sense it viscerally, that they need stoicism as a kind of martial art of the mind, you know, to help defend them against the culture like that they're immersed yeah. in, which is now all about kind of manipulating them, like pulling the strings like puppets and kind of brainwashing them. All right, I'm going to tell you, I didn't see that coming. And I suspect that you're completely spot on. The thing is, we have frequently said that we think that is the enemy, right? One of the ways that we have positioned ourselves in the past as we talk about what we do with Tech After Five has always been that, there, that the particularly the social media side of this is an outrage machine. And we're over here trying to figure out how to defend ourselves from being part of their product, right? Uh -huh. And we've done that historically through face-to-face -face networking, right? So that's our thing is how do we talk to people? How do we have real conversations? How do we engage them in a meaningful and moral way that says, I have to, and I love this, you know, as a mental martial art, I think you're right on. I have to teach myself how not to be, and I'll borrow a term from the Buddhists, right? Not to be all monkey mind about this, to actually find a spot where I can be still and centered and and still encounter the world without it blowing me around. And the other thing I'd say to both you guys is that you're smart guys, right? Like people that work in the tech industry in, 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 in general are literate, intelligent, thoughtful, rational people. They're smart dudes, smart men and women that work in the tech industry. Um, but social media makes us all incredibly stupid, right? It makes us act like we're idiots like if you don't believe me just go and look at it for a second like go and look at the comments on facebook and stuff like that like normally rational sane people suddenly start behaving like complete idiots online it does something to us and the, the stoics said it's about this kind of manipulation that comes through language like the evokes strong emotions the stoics said anger is temporary madness and they're absolutely right about that all of the contemporary cognitive research shows that when people get their emotions all whipped up there's a whole battery of cognitive distortions that come in they start to engage in black and white thinking they make sweeping over generalizations they jump to premature conclusions they start mind reading and projecting other people like they take things out of context selectively <laughs> like it is temporary madness we can't think straight when we're like really angry about things and that's what the media is determined to do because that's how it hijacks our attention it makes us stupider than we actually are like, and all well, we're operating at a lower level, right? Instead of working with that dinner napkin, which is the top of our brain, we're back, we're down at the yeah. emotional level, right down. And it's done that because, quite frankly, it just needs us to engage with it because, again, we're the product, right? So if we can get engaged, we're watching ads, and that's the way this thing works. I think Scott's trying to jump in on this. Yeah, and they, they use all of the logical fallacies intentionally. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Every one of them, slippery slope, the ad hominem attacks, all of them. Yeah. They're, they're tools in the toolbox. They're not. Uh, they're not thinking about it like, oh, these are things to be avoided or that are that make your argument suspect. They're the things that they're using intentionally to build that rage, grab attention, get our eyeballs, and sell them to advertisers. This is why rhetoric and logic are two sides of the same coin because you study the fallacies. Uh, when you're doing logic in order to kind of deconstruct them and get beyond them. But in rhetoric, you study the fallacies in order to use them on purpose. 
Why? And Socrates knew that he was like, you guys talk about all the same stuff that we do, but you're, you're using it for the opposite purpose. Right. Why? You're deliberately trying to distort thinking. We're trying, I'm trying to undo that. Right. Why? I want to do the opposite. We're moving in opposite directions, although we're, you know, sometimes people think we sound like we're saying the same things. We're not. Um, I, I think that's partly, to be honest, why a lot of people today are, are attracted to Stoicism. They see it as one way, perhaps, that they can try and sort through this mess. And I, I'll tell you, one of my other hobby horses about this is, as a modern psychotherapy, like, very simply, we tend to say in psychotherapy there are three broad categories of negative emotion, unhealthy emotions that we deal with, very simplistically, right? There's anger, fear, and sadness, and we say that because often when clients are confused in therapy, we say, okay, let's try and simplify things like so we don't get lost in the weeds. Like you're either angry, frightened, sad, or some kind of mixture of these, right? When, when, you know, when people find it hard to put their emotions into, into words, sometimes it helps to, to simplify it. Now, although people in therapy invariably have some anger, um, there's something about anxiety and depression are more inward-looking emotions that cause people to be more likely to feel guilty, to blame themselves, and to self-refer for treatment. People who are really angry, it's a, an externalizing emotion. So people who are angry tend to think everybody else needs therapy. Like, and so they're less likely to self-refer. And where you see angry people more are in institutions. Like I used to be a schools counselor. So kids that have anger problems would be referred to me by someone else, like by the teacher or in prisons, like inmates of anger problems might be referred to have counseling or therapy by because what other people are in a relationship. One partner might say that the other needs therapy because of their anger problems. So anger, I feel in some ways, there is a lot of great research and literature on anger, but in some ways I feel it's been kind of relatively neglected. But in anxiety and depression are the, the focal point of modern therapy. Now, the ancient Stoics thought anger was more important than the other problems. They are far more concerned with the problem of anger than they are with anxiety and depression, although, again, they do acknowledge these as issues. We have an entire book surviving today by Seneca called On Anger, which is entirely about the Stoic theory and therapy of anger. The Meditations of Marcus Aurelius, I believe, to a large extent, is a book about anger. Like the opening sentence of it, he says he thanks the gods that he had the example of his birth grandfather, Marcus Annius Verus, who's a Roman consul, because he showed him what it was like to be a man free from anger. That's the first sentence of the book, right? And one of the passages, one of the most remarkable passages in that book, uh, book 11, section 18, I think it is, because I've quoted it so many times, he lists 10 cognitive strategies for coping with anger and it's not like a weird little sort of one-off thing he goes back to that list repeatedly throughout the meditations and draws on selections from it now i love to tell people i used to teach therapy i used to be a clinical supervisor and for many years i ran a training school for therapists in the uk i would say confidently if i had a room full of like 30 therapists 40 therapists and i said hey guys can you tell me, and by the way, we're kind of setting aside visual techniques and behavioral techniques. Just talk, We're just talking about cognitive techniques that question your, your, uh, your thinking itself. Could you guys brainstorm some cognitive techniques for coping with anger? I think they'd come up with three or four. Well, I, I think if they worked collaboratively, they'd maybe come up with five or six. 
right? I think individually they struggle to come up with more than three or four. He lists ten. Right. Like, I think that's phenomenal. Like, and he knows them by heart. So to me, I can tell by looking very closely at that text, he's really thought in great, far more depth than most modern psychotherapists about how one would cope with and overcome anger. And so we know it was a particularly important thing to the ancient Stoics. And I think that's a part of Stoicism that we need to bring to the forefront even more today. And I've been saying this for a long time, but, you know, funnily enough, if we look around what's happening in the world right now and where things are heading, it seems crystal clear to me that anger is a, it's a matter of urgency. Like the society learns how to cope with anger and to kind of bring it back to what we mentioned before, where does a lot of this anger actually come from? Well, you know, I think it's safe to say that mainstream media like, and social media aren't helping. Yeah, well, it, it is one of those things that it, clearly anger is being expressed in all sorts of fronts at the moment. We see that everywhere. It, you know, as I went back, because I thought about those 10 techniques, right? This is something you could go through every day and think, all right, how can that help me move forward in this time? Because quite frankly, one of the things that is fouling our communications, right? Interfering, getting in the middle of it is very, every, each party's anger on their spot because they've got some overriding narrative that says, and again, I think, that this is correct. I don't think I'm just piling on that this is a thing that the media, this outrage machine values is let me lead with anger. Let's start by being cranky with this as opposed to, you know, understanding as opposed to saying, how do I ask the right question? One of the things that always reminds me of as well is like when I, um, people often kind of have me pigeonholed as a psychotherapist, by the way, like I started off studying philosophy, like I came at it from that way around. So when, when I, as a young guy, I did philosophy in Aberdeen, university uh, in Scotland, one of the first things I remember learning was we, the te- our lecturer said to us, you guys are going to have to sit in seminar rooms with a bunch of other students, and you're going to have to talk about stuff, uh, particularly in applied ethics classes, that seems really controversial. Like, we're going to be talking about um, nuclear weapons, genocide, abortion, racism, like, and the, the lecturer said, you know, very quickly you're gonna learn, like, and so you might as well, you know, think about this now, that you you can't get angry with people in a philosophy seminar because we, in order to be able to have a rational philosophical debate about these things, we need to think about extreme examples and we need to be willing to discuss them dispassionately. And one of the main things I think I took from philosophy in a roundabout way was just learning you know, that if you want to have a sensible discussion about these things, you need to kind of leave certain things at the door. Like, you need to be willing, you know, to sit down and for people to say, well, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? And to suggest things that sound completely unethical and preposterous and, you know, outrageous, but not to be outraged by it. Like, you know, otherwise you can't have a conversation. And, you know, you're, you know, like, we all become idiots, like, because we're, we become incapable of, of thinking things through clearly. So, you know, in order, it's a foundational stone, or like a basis of rational discourse is the ability to set our, our feelings aside temporarily and discuss things in a dispassionate manner. Yeah. yeah, I think you're exactly right about that. And I think it's especially important for young people to learn these tools because they, unlike us who sort of became immersed in this sort of new media and social media environment as adults, they've they've marinated in it since childhood. They've never known anything different. 
So as soon as I finished your book, I gave it to both of my children. Uh-huh. And my daughter, who's a classics major uh, at the College of Charleston, uh, she really took to it, understands the context of it, and can apply that uh, in her life to uh, more effectively engage with not only media and social media, but friends and family in live face-to-face conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the, the, you know, like you say, you people that have grown up in this environment where we, you know, things are done remotely and in a sort of abstract manner, it's like an echo chamber or something. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I think you learn quickly. I said, our lecturers told us that, but they were also like, you're going to gonna have to figure this out pretty quickly anyway, right? Because if you go in a seminar room and you freak out because somebody, you know, says maybe we should, maybe we should reintroduce slavery, you know, like, what, is it really that unethical? Like, you know, you have to be willing to sit around and discuss it, otherwise you're not going to be able to do philosophy at all. And right. if there's something, if you're sitting in a room full of people, and you can read their faces, you can read the room, like, you know, if you start to shout at them, they'll kind of look at you like, dude, like, you know, if you freak out completely, people will be like, you need to leave, like, you know, you can't stand on the table and scream at us or whatever. But on the internet, you can stand on the table and scream abuse at people and nobody tells you to leave the room, yeah. right? Like, you can say horrible, offensive, abusive things and nobody will turn around and just punch you in the nose for it. Like, you have this anonymity and this kind of protective shield around you that allows you to do fundamentally antisocial things like, and get away with it and not to kind of adapt and, and, and read people. And it allows you to project stuff. You know, you can't sit there and someone that you really respect and you, you know is very reasonable and calm, listen to them say something really outrageous for the sake of discussion. Like, if you see that online, you're just going to assume, like, that it's meant in a malicious manner and project and read all sorts of stuff into it, and that allows you to go crazy about it and get really angry. Like, if you're talking to people in person, I think you naturally adapt more easily, like, than if you're doing it in this kind of abstract echo chamber. And I I think over time, as you interact more and more in that echo chamber, that those types of behaviors do start to bleed over into your face-to-face interaction because you become desensitized to it. You don't know what it means, like, you know, to to have a conversation with other people and to to pick up on the nuance of of what they're saying. Um, You know, I think the Stoics, like, there are many things that they, they, they... suggest that we do like one of the main things actually i don't know why this has become a particular bugbear for me recently that i've thought about more and more and i think actually funnily enough it comes probably from talking to people um face to face you know and uh you know i sit there and i write about stoicism and i apply it in my little world but i think off what i noticed but when i was talking to my friends about it there were other bits of it that became more relevant to the conversation and one of them was that the stoics generally speaking I would say one of the kind of meta themes of Stoicism, one of the overarching themes of Stoicism is broadening our perspective. And they get this, if you want to get really fundamental about it, it's because they're pantheists. Like, so they believe the universe as a whole is kind of sacred, it's, it's divine in a sense. And they think it's a puzzle, it's an enigma that we're only aware of a fragment of it at any given time. Like, is, there's something inherently fragmentary about human life, but we know this intellectually, like physically we look around us and we see what's right under our nose right but intellectually we know there's a whole world out there intellectually we know that this is just a brief 
moment, a turn of a screw in the immensity of cosmic time and space, as Marcus keeps telling himself, you know, but we have to battle against our animal nature, our physical nature that's just kind of reacting to whatever stimulus is in front of our, our face at the time. And so there's a theme in the Stoics in many different ways about broadening our perspective in that they think that the wise person, the Sophos, has this more cosmic point of view. They see the bigger picture all the time. Well, of course, when people get angry and upset, you know, they develop tunnel vision. And there's a huge body of modern research that shows that when people are highly emotionally charged, the scope of their attention becomes narrowed. So normally we can walk and chew gum like you can drive your car and think about what you're going to have for dinner tonight and have a conversation with the kids in the back seat or whatever. You can do several things at once, you know, like, you know, I could be talking to one of my friends and answering an email at the same time, but when people are angry or upset, they, they narrow their attention naturally and they can only really handle one thing at a time. Right. And that leads to selective thinking and taking things out of context. And one form, I'll, if you don't mind me just digging a little bit deeper into that, there are many forms that that takes. But one very specific form that Marcus talks about, I think the other Stoics maybe touch on as well, and it's part of his list of 10 strategies, is that when we're dealing with another person, we have to be careful not to, they say something that's kind of offensive to us, you know, that could happen, like it's part of the course of life. And Marcus says, but you have to take what they say, and this requires an effort, like in the context of what you know about their personality as a whole, right? So maybe they make a remark and you could kind of take it either of two ways, right? And maybe, you know, potentially you, you get offended with it because you take it the wrong way. But if you think, if you think about what you know about that person, like about their history, about their personality uh, as a whole, maybe you would interpret their remark and respond to it differently. And for some reason, I feel that people ha- are doing that less and less. Like right. they're becoming much more reactive to individual remarks that other people make on social media. And I don't like, I mean, one might be that somebody might say something that's ambiguous and could be taken as uh, discriminatory, right? Like, transphobic or racist or whatever but it's not entirely clear if that's what they meant by it but then you might know that that person isn't like that right and so if it was your mom or a friend and you thought well maybe you want to phrase that differently buddy but like I know you well enough to know like that's the opposite of what you're like but Marcus says you have to make an effort to do that Marcus was a magistrate the Roman emperor served as a judge and it was a, it's hard for us to imagine this today but a big part of what he did was to adjudicate in uh, in legal cases and again i think he has that in mind when he's referring to the the stoics were very influential in roman law and i think marcus has this in mind in terms of the psychology of jurisprudence that he thinks in order to judge a criminal you know i have to take into account their personality as a whole you know, and not just the individual act, you know, I don't know what motivated this act, well, you know, but were, were they maybe trying to do something positive, but went about it the wrong way, you know, is it out of character for them, you know, and so as a judge, as a magistrate, like, he had to think about things, and he says, like, often there's things that you don't know about people, 
that make it difficult to arrive at a firm decision about the nature of the character. And sadly, we have to do that in human life because he's like, I have to sit in court and pass sentence on people. You know, we have to do, we have to make decisions about whether we want to sack somebody or not, or work or hire them or not. Like, but Marcus says you need to also suspend judgment to some extent and realize that there's always an element of uncertainty in doing that. You know, and not kind of be so dogmatic about it, as it were. Like, you know, deal with the ambiguity and uncertainty. It's part of the the, the nature of life itself. But not take an individual comment that somebody makes and react to that as if it's the whole story about the other person. It takes a conscious intellectual effort. And this is a, an, an element of laziness about it. In a way, it's easier not to bother. Like, but the Stoics want us to make that go that extra mile, make that little bit of extra effort, and think, what does this mean in terms of the context of the whole person's personality? Yeah, I think that's especially important when the person is not like you. I think that we tend to see people that are like us, maybe our race, uh, our economic condition, our location. We see them as complex individuals that maybe only, you know, they have different thoughts and theories. We can see all their facets. And people that are less like us, we tend to see as very simple, black and white. We have stereotypes and prejudices about them. And we don't do as good a job just subconsciously of digging in and saying, you know, what this person doesn't just represent, you know, one narrative. They're a complex person too. And let me think about their life and what they're like and, and all that you just said. So I think it's especially important to, to be conscious about doing it when the person that you're listening to or talking to is is different. Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you another little anecdote about that. And, you know, this is a controversial story, but it's one of my favorite stories. So we, and just for also for your your, your viewers, your, your audience, you know, like did, oh, maybe this is an opportunity to mention some basic Stoic teachings. So the, the most famous Stoic psychological teaching is passage five of the Enchiridion of Epictetus, is the handbook of Epictetus, and it, it says it's not things or events that upset us, but our opinions about them. And the reason that that's very famous is it became, um, it sums up what we call the cognitive theory of emotion. It's the, the central premise of all modern cognitive therapy is actually encapsulated in that statement. So all CBT practitioners know that quote, even if they don't know anything else about stoicism. Mm -hmm. Albert Ellis, one of the pioneers of cognitive therapy, used to teach that to all of his students and all of his clients. It's quoted in most of his many books, maybe all of his books, uh, for all I know. Like, it's certainly very frequently quoted. It's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. And so people often think of that as very typically stoic. I don't. Like, I think it goes all the way back to Socrates. Right. Uh, I think it's one of the things that the Stoics actually inherited from their, you know, their, their granddaddy, like their forebear, like Socrates. Uh, and funnily enough, in the next sentence, Epictetus says, for example, think about Socrates, like in the very next sentence. And I don't think that's a coincidence because I think Epictetus, who loved Socrates and goes on about him all the time to his students, like, was very aware that this idea comes from Socrates, not just in the dialogues of Plato, incidentally, why, but it's also in the memorabilia Socrates of Xenophon, which is our other main source. So I think this goes all the way back to the original philosophy of Socrates. And one of my favorite examples of it is there's a Socratic dialogue where um, Socrates is talking to one of his own sons in the memorabilia Socrates, uh, the memorabilia uh, written by Xenophon. And uh, the guy's called Lamprocles. He's probably about 15. 
by at the time. Uh, he's Socrates' eldest son. And it's such a home, like, like with the Socrates, you know, people say, can you give us any advice about stoicism and parenting and stuff like that? And I say, there's a dialogue about it. Like, there's, <laughs> there's a Socratic dialogue about parenting. So Xenophon says, one day I heard Socrates having this discussion with his eldest son. It's like, whoa, okay, this is going to be interesting, right? Like, <laughs> let's see how this pans out. And uh, so Lamprocles opening gambit is to say, Dad, I can't stand my mum. She drives me crazy, right? So this 15-year-old kid is saying to Socrates, Dad, mum's just driving me nuts. Like, she's just unbearable. Like Now, Xanthope, her name has become throughout the ages uh, a synonym for the shrewish, hot-tempered, you know, a difficult woman. Like, uh, you know, that's how she's portrayed often. So Socrates used to joke about how the fact, you know, dealing with his, his wife was good training for developing psychological resilience in general. So she had this kind of reputation for having a very fiery temper. And basically, cut a long story short, in the dialogue, Socrates does this much more elegantly and much more carefully. But he, his argument to Lamprocles is, you know, do you, he starts off by saying, you know, like, remember, your mum brought you up and she fed you and she nusses you when you're sick. And, you know, like, so he gets Lamprocles to admit that his mum fundamentally loves him and wants to help him, even if sometimes she'll throw a bucket of cold water over him and scream at him and stuff like that. And they have arguments. And then Socrates uses I, what, to me, I know not everybody is convinced by this argument, but I find this a fascinating argument. Socrates says to Lamprocles, you know when you go and look at the tragedies, when you go to the theatre in Greece, this is a bit like watching Netflix, right? right. You know when you're watching Netflix, you know when you, you're watching Stranger Things on Netflix, you know when you, you, know when you go to the tragedies? He said, Shh, there are people on stage screaming at each other, threatening each other, saying stuff that's much worse than your mum ever says to you, true or false. And Lamprocles is like, well, yeah, like that might be true. He says, but the difference is they don't actually it's not real. Like they don't actually mean any harm to the other person when, when they're saying it, dad, right? Um, so one of the interesting things is that these dialogues that you don't get in the Stoics, the Stoicism is like a bullet point version of Socrates, right? They, they're very interested in how to apply it in practice, but they're not interested in kind of debating it as much, at least in the surviving literature. Whereas in Socrates, there's much more of a back and forth. There's pushback against some of these ideas. So Lamprocles is, yeah, whatever, dad. Like, you know, but they don't really mean to harm the other person. It's fake, right, obviously. And then Socrates does this classic thing that he always does beautifully in the dialogues. He says, yeah, but... A minute ago, you told me that you don't believe that your mum means you any harm, right? Because you know her well enough to know that actually she loves you and cares for you. So even though she's screaming at you and throws cold water over you, like, you know like, that she's not really intending to harm you. Like Sometimes, you know, maybe she loses her temper and stuff. Like, and you also know that other people, Socrates included, are more tolerant of it because they see the bigger picture of her personality. So sure, your mum's got a short fuse, but she loves you really, is basically what he's saying to his son, right? But you've kind of lost sight of that, right? You've told me that actors on stage don't get upset when someone yells at them because they're confident that the other person doesn't really mean them any genuine harm. But you've also already told me that you know that about your mother. So why are you upset 
why when she screams at you, right? And this is a classic in the meta in the abstract terms. Socrates, one of his favorite topics is distinguishing appearance and reality. So he's saying you're reacting emotionally to the appearance, like whereas you should be making this intellectual effort to grasp the underlying reality, right? Which is that your mum loves you. And this is the dialogue is attempting to get Lamprocles to see beyond the, the, the appearances and respond to his mother on the basis of what he knows about the reality of her character as a whole. And so when Marcus Aurelius in book 11, chapter, uh, book 11, chapter 18 says, it's very difficult sometimes to, to respond to somebody in terms of their personality as a whole. You have to make an effort to do that. He's referring back to this long tradition, which by this point, is what uh, like nearly over 500 years yeah. um right yeah that's it's a fascinating tale and i think that that's that bit we're all having trouble with and again it's because i think there's so much of what we see in the world is trying to get us to take that surface as real because there's money to be made off of people reacting to it so let me get you to a question i think on both of our minds is here we are at the moment um how do we spread a little bit of this idea of how to calm our heads and be a noble actor in this space? I mean, you know, the, there are the circles. I mean, is that how is that the format that we use for this? Is that how we think about the world in terms of the people we want to influence and bring to a calmer state? The two best pieces of advice that I can give. There are many ways that we could approach answering that question, but the, we find in the Stoics them saying, look. The Stoics said the wise man will write books in order to help other people. So they say, yeah, like, you know, people will lecture, they'll write books. But more fundamentally, the Stoics believe that we have to role model. Like, they said that the best way to learn like, and the best way to teach other people is by really trying to exemplify the qualities ourselves. And I always believed that as a therapist. And, you know, I thought therapists would talk a lot about how can I do this with clients? How can I do that with clients? How can I do these techniques? And I used to say to my supervisees in, in clinical practice, right, you know, like one of the most important things is to, that you should go there first, right? So if you're teaching a client pain control techniques, you need to be able to do them yourself. Like you should be, the most powerful thing you can do is demonstrate them. Like, and the, the way we, there are various ways that we do that in, in therapy. Um, you know, you need to, as far as possible, think of creative ways that you can actually demonstrate techniques to clients um, and exemplify them yourself. There are opportunities in the session like that you can use to show the client some of the attitudes and behaviors that, that you want them to learn. So role modeling, the Stoics would say, is the first thing. We have to go there first. Like, and become like the the person that we that we'd like to to see other people become. Um, and then I think the other thing I found over the years is that it, it benefits people immensely to shift the level of the conversation to a meta level and to talk about the way that they're talking. And and stoicism enables us to do that because it's a philosophy. Um, so, you know, like when things are getting crazy in a discussion forum, you know, one of the things that will completely change the atmosphere is to say to people, what does stoicism actually teach us about the best way to communicate? What does stoicism teach us about how to deal with trolls? You know, what does stoicism teach us about how to respond to, to something that, that someone says that we think might be offensive? Um, and like to kind of take a step back and turn the philosophy 
on itself in a way and say, you know, why, why, rather than arguing about the philosophy, what would the philosophy say about the way that we are interacting with each other right now? And that, that has, I, I know from experience, even in the classroom setting as well, um, you know, for example, sometimes you'll be teaching in a classroom and you'll get all sorts of, like, uh, you might get questions that aren't that helpful from the, uh, the students. Or they can get, like, the therapists I worked with would often become quite argumentative, right? Um, because therapy is an incredibly politicised profession, funnily enough. Um, there are historic reasons for that. Like, when people train as therapists, they usually pick a modality to train in. So they become a gestalt therapist or a psychodynamic therapist, which is a really dumb idea in a way. Like, because then for like possibly the rest of their life, they identify with that one approach, rightly or wrongly, and they see anyone that adopts a, a different approach as being like, you know, it might as well be Democrats and Republicans or something like that. You know, it becomes politicized rather than like let's actually right. get to the truth, right? It becomes tribal. Um, which is crazy, this is stupid, um, but that's the way that the profession has been uh, defined historically. So when I was teaching these groups of people, they'd argue a lot. Um, and uh, But then if I'd say to them, you know, like, we've just been looking at communication skills and assertiveness training, so what does that tell us about the conversations we're having right now? Like about the best way to do assertiveness training or whatever, you know. What do you guys like? What do you guys think about the most effective questions to ask? Like, how could we actually make questions more helpful and more effective for the group as a whole? So, kind of shifting things to that more meta level powerfully changes the the ambience in the room. Usually, because people are not stupid, you know, they're smart enough to realise what they're doing, especially when they talk begin talking to other people about it. Um, you know, they just need help snapping out of it, taking a step back and looking at things. So, you know, like say you have a group of people, you know, just getting them to, to say, what, what do you guys think is the most effective way to actually run this group? Like, you know, what would be, you know, what's the, what are the sort of problems that we might encounter and how can we right. deal with them better as a group? Like, you know, those kind of self-reflective questions, I, I feel are like dynamite, you know, they have a, a tremendous power to, to transform things. Yeah. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so you're working on new stuff, I know. Mike, the question I would have for you about how to think like a Roman emperor, is there anything that you wanted to get in here that you just didn't? I'm sure there were a bunch of things, you know, because part of the writing process, like, for example, I probably wrote a lot of stuff that didn't end up in there that would have been edited out. Um, and the, the initial draft of the book was different, completely different, really. It was, there wasn't any, um, the initial version of it didn't really have the, any of the cognitive therapy in it, funnily enough. You know, mm -hmm. so my, my publisher weren't super happy about it. They were like, ah, you're a cognitive therapist. You need to write about it. And I was like, well, that wasn't really part of the idea for the book. And they're like, well, you need to figure out a way to get it in more. So the other weird thing about writing a book is, I guess, like, you know, making a movie or doing all things. It's got my name on the front. You know, and it is largely me, you know, that, that wrote it. But I, from my point of view, it's a little bit more of a collaborative project. You know, uh, I mean, if I'd been left to my own devices, I would have written a different book. Right. You know, so the, the editor is like, no, there needs to be more CBT in it. And that, you know, that may have been a fairly short conversation, but it completely changed the, the form that the, the book ended up taking. So I would have... Uh, and I, I was probably wrong about that. Like they would, they probably, they probably were right. You know, some people seem to value that. Mm -hmm. um, what would I? Have put? 
there was something I was thinking about the other day. I can't remember what it was now that that I thought I would have gone back and and changed. And uh, oh, do you know what I would have? This is more about the history. I would have said more. And actually, the question you're asking, um, like there'll probably be a, a revised edition of that book at some point. So for me, it's actually a question about what am I going to change about the book when I, I come to revise it, right? Um, I would have put in more stuff about Christianity. Hmm. Um, and the, also, you've got a limited amount of space. So there were things that were lost from the book because we're like, well, it's, it's too long. It needs to kind of abbreviate it a bit. But often when you revise a book, the publisher will give you a little bit more leeway to kind of add 10, 20, 30 pages to it. Like, whereas before, they'll be like, nah, you need to get rid of 10 pages from this. Like, you still lose a couple of pages from this chapter. And, oh, I guess all the stuff about Christianity needs to go then. Like, but I would, I would put more stuff about Christianity in it for several reasons. Um, one of them is just the very simple fact that some of the reviewers were like, you didn't say anything about Christianity. So people who are Christians and feel strongly about it you know, think Christians, lions, Roman emperors, like simple as that. And they're like, why isn't there anything? There's nothing in here anywhere about lions eating Christians or whatever. Um, and one of the reasons I didn't put that in is because I think the historical evidence for that is extremely unreliable. And a lot of it is actually based on propaganda. Like, so some of the Christian sources are crazy unreliable. Like Eusebius, who's our main source, says himself that a lot of the stuff that he's writing is made up for the purposes of Christian propaganda. He literally says that. It's the title of one of the sections in one of his books. It's what they call the pious fraud, right? And then, so I thought, I can't put this in because I don't know whether it actually happened or not, but we need to kind of address it somehow. So I think what I'd do if I revised the book would be to say more about that. And I also, I think at a deeper level, to get back more to, I think, what you're hinting at in terms of the, the psychological content, I... I there's something I can't quite formulate right now, but I feel like the kind of lack of reference to Christianity means that some of the social dimension of Stoicism gets neglected. So today, people who you'll see, I see people every day complaining about how they think Stoicism has been hijacked by the self-help community. And they talk about like broicism and they have right. various names for... The, they, they complain that Silicon Valley Stoicism, as they call it in general, and I think these are kind of woolly terms, but they, their perception is that that a lot of the, the religious and the, the social aspects of Stoicism are left out. I have this conversation a lot where people say, oh, we don't like it when you talk about politics. And I'm like, Stoicism is a political philosophy. Like right. the, the, In the ancient world, it was Machiavelli who said, uh, politics has got nothing to do with ethics, right? That's why you know that's why he's so notorious. He was like, yeah, well, let's just get rid of ethics, right? Like, but in the ancient world, like politics is just ethics applied to public life, right? And so it would be crazy to it would almost be inconceivable to them to say the someone talking about ethical philosophy would never mention politics. Like they, they would think that that's a bizarre concept. Of course, you have to talk about the way that you interact with society as a whole and, and the way that you govern the city and things. And Stoicism originated a, a political treatise, the Republic of uh, Zeno, which was a critique of, of Plato's Republic. So the, you'll get a lot of people um, arguing about, you know, whether we should 
and, and some people really firmly believe that stoicism has no relevance at all to, to this kind of social dimension. I think what I like to say to them, I, you know, this is a kind of rhetoric in a way, but just from having many conversations with people, I know what buttons to press, right? So when they start going off on that and saying, well, stoicism is completely apolitical, and I don't really see what it has to do with love, or I don't see what it has to do with so, like, social virtue or justice or any of that kind of stuff, you know, I'll say to them, do you realize that stoicism is the philosophical inspiration for early Christian ethics? Right? Do you see, do you realize that to a large extent, Christianity emerged from, from stoicism in the cosmopolitan tradition? Um, and so all that stuff about brotherly love in Christianity comes to a large extent from stoicism, right? I think there's and, always some group inside of, there's always some fundamental group inside of every organization that wants to think they invented this way of thinking. And that's probably what it's resistance to, right? I think it's that's like, part of it. I mean, you know, I mean, this is real. This is a rabbit hole. But the fact is, it's really easy not to mention this guy doesn't mention that guy who doesn't yeah. mention this guy. I feel like you did pretty. I mean, I feel like this. I mean, you went all the way back to Aristotle and trying to prot those bits yeah. through. But I think there's yeah. a lot of folks that just don't want to see that there were forebears that they did not invent this thought. Absolutely, you know, and. The, the sto stoicism is an eclectic philosophy, is the other thing I'd say, in a sense. The, the, the Stoics were very explicit about the fact that they're drawing on lots of earlier philosophies. Yeah, but and, and the thing is, I think on top of that, that we have to think about is, and, and you bring this up in here, is that it is a, uh, it is a working philosophy. It is not an academic-only philosophy, right? It is how to lead a rational life in the time in which we live, which means there have to be adjustments as we go because uh, the world changes around us. It's funny you should say that as well. Like one of the first things that struck me about Stoicism is the very name itself. Um, first of all, most ancient schools of philosophy are named after their founder, like Epicureanism, like Platonism. Uh, Aristotelianism, like Pythagoreanism, like Stoicism isn't called Xenonism, right? And I, I think that's quite striking because apparently we're told that originally they kind of toyed with the idea of naming it after Zeno and then they were like, no, it doesn't make sense for us because we're not a personality cult, right? We're not telling people that they should agree with everything that Zeno said. The Stoics didn't believe that anyone was perfectly wise and so Zeno told his students they need to think for themselves. So they said, well, we just need to name it after the place that we meet. But the place that they met is extremely kind of resonant for a number of reasons. For a start, it was the location where uh, we're told 1,400 Athenian Democrats and immigrants were executed during the oligarchy of the 30 tyrants. So this is a place associated with brutal political oppression. Uh, and uh, there are a number of other peculiar things about the, the Stoapoikale, the place that they're named after. Um, but one of the things that people miss is the Stoapoikale is in the Agora, right? It's overlooking the Athenian uh, marketplace and, and town centre, which is exactly the, the person that's, uh, the individual that's associated with the Agora is Socrates. Like, that's where he used to hang out. He he used to he was executed there as well. Like he uh, he would hang out in the shop. See, one of his best friends was Simon the Cobbler, famously, which is a typical Socratic irony. Because Socrates didn't wear shoes, but he used to hang about in a, a shoemaker shop all day. Like, I mean, his buddy must have thought Socrates. Like, when are you actually going to buy something from me? Worst like, you say, <laughs> <laughs> you say, you're not doing my business any good, right? You're just hanging around here in your bare feet. I'm like trying to sell sandals. 
And Simon was allegedly the first person to, to publish uh, Socratic dialogues, which are all lost to us today. But Socrates was this guy that hung around in the shopping mall doing philosophy, like philosophy of the street with ordinary people. The, the Athenians thought this was shocking, that he did philosophy with women, right? Which they thought was bizarre. And immigrants, poor people, slaves, like, you know, they, this was uh, prostitutes. Um, one of, do you know, uh, one of the most famous Socratic dialogues is the Phaedo that's describing uh, Socrates' last moments before he died. Right, Fido was a, a, a slave um, who was forced to work in an Athenian brothel. So he was a male prostitute. And the story, the legend is that he, he came to Socrates and begged him for help. And Socrates persuaded his healthy, his wealthy friends to, to club together and, and buy Fido's freedom. And after that, this, this guy became a philosopher and a follower of Socrates and one of the most famous authors of Socratic dialogues, but he was uh, a slave who was forced to work in a, a, a brothel as a male prostitute, and Socrates liberated him from that because he, he begged him for help. So Socrates was immersed in, in this kind of um, real mix. You know, he knew some of the most famous and influential people in Athenian society, and he was also interacting with people that were completely excluded um, from sure. power in, in Athenian society. And, and then... Epicurus, for example, went and did philosophy on, outside the city in this private garden with his only admitting his friends. And Plato went to the uh, the academy, um, the you know the, and so did Aristotle. They went to the gymnasia where only um, men were allowed, um, uh, where only Athenian citizens were allowed, so not metics, not immigrants. Um, and so like, they went to these more exclusive places, like the ivory towers of, the, of academia, as we would say today. And this, the Stoics, several generations after Socrates died, took philosophy back into the agora. Like, they went back. The name itself, Stoa, means like an arcade on the edge of the marketplace in a shopping mall. Like they took philosophy back out into the public arena, and that was what they, you know, what they were known for, and what the very name itself implies. Yeah, I, well, I think that is one of the reasons that I have been fascinated by this, and I appreciate you and the book, and and all of the stuff. I mean, here's the thing, I, you know, I, there are folks that come out with a piece. You are a prolific writer. It feels like you've got new medium posts and things like that. You are out in the world kind of spreading ideas all over the time, all over the place and much of the time. Um, so I want to say a, a thank you for that. And uh, thanks for being just a steady and calm voice and kind of uh, introducing a whole bunch of folks to some, I think, powerful ideas. Well, thanks. It's a pleasure. And I'm just, I just feel very privileged that I get to do my hobby. You know, I love, uh, I love doing philosophy and I'm, I guess I'm very lucky that I get a chance to, to do that. And the, the lockdown hasn't affected me too badly, actually, because I just spend most of my time writing. <laughs> I don't go out that much anyway. Like, yeah. so I've, I've just, it's just ended up propelling me into doing even more research and, and writing, which is, you know, I'm as, uh, uh, the ancient Greeks would say, as happy as a kid in milk. Like like a baby goat thrown into a bucket of milk, you know. Like I, you know, I'm in my element. 
Yeah, that's excellent. Um, well, thank you again for being here with us today, Donna Robertson. I, people can follow you on Twitter, I guess. Where would you like people to come find you? Where's the best place to do that? If they just go to my website, then they'll find my all my e-learning courses and Medium and everything there. My website's just donaldrobertson.name, so it's just my name and then .name instead of .com, and then they'll get all my social media and everything linked to from there. Super. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. Uh, thank you, Scott, for helping me out with this today. Great. And Wonderful conversation. Yeah, just super excited about it, and we couldn't recommend this uh, anymore. Can't, can't give a heartier recommendation than we already have. Thank you for that, and we hope to see you next time.